0: I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. want to welcome you to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about uh, an important uh, if understudied uh, legal doctrine and legal conversations that's happening now around the country with renewed interest and renewed importance. And we're talking about the Chevron uh, Doctrine, as it's been called, and its importance for thinking about the United States Supreme Court, the administrative state, and the rule of law in the United States. Today we're joined for that conversation by Mark Chenoweth. Mark is president and chief legal officer for the New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, which is a very active organization engaged in litigation. Um, And Mark will be able to tell us a little bit more about the organization and their litigation uh, as we go through the conversation today. He is a graduate of Yale and of the University of Chicago Law School and was also a law clerk on the Sixth Circuit Court, uh, which used to be, I think, led by our old friend, Alice Batchelder, uh, who has been well-connected and and a great friend to the Ashbrook Center. So, Mark, if we're not direct friends, we're at least indirect friends, and thank you for taking the time to join us today.
1: I'm glad to be with you. Uh, uh, It was a privilege to sit. uh, I clerked for Judge Boggs on the Sixth Circuit. We sat with Judge Batchelder at least once uh, that I recall, and uh, it was a pleasure to do so. And uh, spent spent many uh, uh, many weeks in in Cincinnati during the course of my uh, year clerking on the Sixth, sixth Circuit. So, uh, have fond memories of that.
0: Tell us, um, I think pe- a lot of our listeners, as you know, are are deeply in- concerned uh, with U.S. history, the United States Constitution. They know something, of course, about the Supreme Court and evil's, even some legal doctrine. We're hearing a little bit more about this thing, so-called Chevron, out in the media today. But take us back. What are people talking about when they talk about the Chevron Doctrine, and why is it important for us to understand?
1: Sure. So the Chevron Doctrine goes back to a U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, Chevron, uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council, which was decided by the court in 1984— Uh, It was decided by six justices. There were two justices sick that day. If I remember correctly, it was Chief Justice, or no, not Chief, then Justice Rehnquist and Justice Marshall uh, were sick. And then there was one other justice uh, who was recused uh, from the case. And I can't remember offhand uh, who that was. It might have been uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. And so there were uh, only six justices, which is the bare minimum uh, allowed uh, to hear a case. And so you might think that they would have shied away from uh, you know, doing something as, as significant uh, as this case became, uh, but that's part of the story here. They didn't think that they were doing anything all that significant. They didn't really mean to create, uh, or at least that's the story that's told, this, this, uh, this new doctrine uh, of administrative deference, at least not to quite the same extent uh, that they wound up uh, doing. And so the Chevron Doctrine dates back to that case, but it evolved subsequent to the holding. That particular case had to do with the Clean Air Act and what's a stationary source. And the EPA, which was then led by Justice Gorsuch's mother, and Gorsuch, uh, under, uh, under the Reagan uh, administration, uh, was trying to argue for a little more flexibility within plants, so that a certain rule didn't apply smokestack by smokestack, but applied to the overall Sort of uh, uh, you know general vicinity of the of the plant, and they thought that that would allow there to be some more more sort of cost effective uh, air pollution strategies uh, put into effect. So that was the controversy that was at issue in the case. Uh, but the particular holding that came out of it, aside from sort of the Clean Air Act holding, but this doctrine that that came out is this idea where uh, courts are told, in these uh, administrative cases, these cases about uh, federal regulations, uh, to first use all of the sort of statutory tools that you would, you would use in any other case to try to figure out the meaning of the statute and, and how it would apply to the situation. But if you get to the end of applying all those statutory tools and there's ambiguity or a silence uh, in the statute, uh, then at that point you should defer to the uh to the agency's interpretation uh, of the statute and then it's so step one of chevron is apply all the tools see if see if there's an ambiguity or whether you can resolve that ambiguity as a court step two if if you decide there is an ambiguity then defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute again if it's reasonable and if it's a statute that's under the purview of that agency which of course the clean air act was under epa's purview so that's that's what the Chevron doctrine is. Maybe we can get into why that's so problematic.
0: So in layman's terms, it's something like, as you say, if the if a judge if a federal judge does not quite sure what the law means that's involved in the case, and there's a federal agency, they should defer to that federal agency's interpretation of
1: the law. That, that is what Chevron holds. Yes.
0: Okay. Why is that important?
1: So it affects every single administrative law case uh, out there. And uh, as one measure of uh, of the importance of this case, it's apparently either, depending on who you talk to, the number one or number two most cited Supreme Court case ever uh, in the lower court. Oh, wow, side. ever? Ever. So it's it's either Marbury versus Madison or Chevron. Those are the two cases that are the most widely cited and uh and and so that's the, the, just the scope of it this isn't limited to EPA cases or clean air act cases this affects every single case that involves a federal agency uh or even a case that involves a federal regulation it wouldn't necessarily have to have a federal agency on one side of the case uh but whether you're suing the federal agency or the federal agency is suing you the the vast majority of the time the chevron doctrine will come into play uh and it's the it's the sort of standard go-to uh rubric that a court will apply in deciding these administrative uh, cases and the problem for the average litigant is it really puts a thumb on the scale for uh for the government to prevail uh in these cases and so there's uh there's academics have looked at this and the statistics that uh, that ab- about 70% of the time courts get to step two of the Chevron analysis. And then once they get to step two, the government wins about 90% of the time. And so just this doctrine alone, really, you can just see how that tilts the whole playing field in favor of a federal agency in all of this litigation. And that's one of the things that that we uh pointed out to the court and that we object to.
0: And tell us a little bit more about how the Chevron defense has actually been used. What kind of federal regulations and bureaucratic uh, actions have been upheld because of the Chevron defense?
1: Well, gosh, everything, everything under the moon that you can imagine. But the the particular um, uh, the particular case that we were uh, that we had in front of the Supreme Court. Was uh, involved the national, and this will just give you a sense of, you know, some an agency as large as the EPA, and then our case, involved a much smaller agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration (NOAA), uh, and the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, underneath uh, NOAA, and they had a, a regulation uh, that uh, that they implemented that tried to. Well, first of all, there's something that Congress passed called the Magnuson-Stevens Act back in the in the 1970s. Uh, That statute uh, governs uh, different rules of fishing uh, in in the waters off of the coast of the United States, including in the North Atlantic, uh, where our clients uh, fish for herring. And in this herring fishery, one of the things that the uh, Magnuson-Stevens Act and some of the subsequent amendments required was for there to be observers on these boats occasionally that would uh, look at how the fish stocks are doing. They would maybe look at what bycatch the fishermen are bringing in. That means the fish you're fishing for herring, but you accidentally bring in something that's not herring. You know how often is that happening, or what kinds of species are being are being uh, netted? Uh, you know, sort of accidentally or or incidentally uh, in the process. And they they look at some of these other kinds of things. And uh, the, and the fishermen were fine with that. You know, they don't love having these monitors on board because it's uh, they have to uh they have to provide a berth uh, for them because these are overnight trips our clients are out for you know sometimes a week 10 days maybe even more than that uh, they have to provide meals for these monitors uh who are on the boat and then these monitors i mean they can get in the way or uh they're also just not necessarily the most uh they don't have the best sea legs these aren't seasoned people and if you're you know out in the North Atlantic with 15 foot swales. And a lot of these monitors aren't, you know, they're not seasoned and they, they may just be filling their boots the whole time. And that's an, you know, an extra problem for the, you know, for the, uh, uh, for the fisherman to have to deal with and for the captain to have to deal with, you know, not only trying to keep the boat, uh, not only trying to fish and keep the boat, uh, uh, you know, through rough seas or something, but now you have somebody on board who who's sick through the whole thing too. So, right. it's a so problem. What's the con- so
0: what became? What's the controversy with the monitors then under the law?
1: The, so the controversy is that that Congress stopped funding the monitors at the level that NOAA thought that they ought to be funded, and so NOAA said, "Well, we want to keep we want to keep putting more monitors on the boat." So they passed a regulation passing the costs of the monitors onto the fishermen directly. And that's a problem for a few reasons, including the fact that the statute never gave, Congress never gave the agency the power to do that. In fact, the, the statute did give the agency the power to do that in a couple of particular instances. So uh, for foreign fishing vessels, fishing in US waters, NOAA is allowed to put monitors on those boats and charge those boats directly for those monitors. Well, that makes some sense that you might charge foreign vessels for that they also uh, allowed it in the northern pacific which is a very different fishery where there are higher margin fish so you could think of a last alaskan king crab or something like that these you know n- not not herring which is a much more low margin uh, fish but uh, and even there they capped the cost at 2 to 3% uh of uh, of the catch for what uh the agency could charge for these monitors well what they're charging uh in or trying to charge under the regulation in North Atlantic is 20% of the cost of, you know, of the herring catch. So Congress just never approved that. And so you have an agency that's acting outside the scope of its statutory remit. And that's a huge part of the problem here. And you might say, oh, well, didn't the lower courts decide it that way and, and rein the agency in? Well, that's where the Chevron doctrine comes in, because in this case, uh, our our case was in the District of Rhode Island, and then in the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. And in both in both those uh, places, the court looked at it and said, "Well, uh, you know, if you look at this under Chevron, it's a maybe it's a close question, but we're going to defer to the agency and decide that they can do this." And in the uh, uh, in the companion case called Loper Bright, that came up. Through uh, the D.C. District Court and the D.C. Court of Appeals, uh, they had the, the D.C. Court of Appeals decided the same thing that applying applying Chevron, the agency wins. But there was a dissent, at least in the D.C. Circuit. So, what effect does
0: a rule like that have on your clients, on the fishermen?
1: Well, it it just makes it really unprofitable for them to you know to go out and and try to fish. Uh, it's, it's something like seven hundred dollars a day. Uh, cost for these monitors and that's more than than the crew uh, get paid uh, on these ships the rule was written to have some sorts of uh, uh, exceptions or exemptions uh, so if you uh, captured uh, below a certain tonnage or if you only went out for the day and came back that same day then you can have uh, you can have uh, an inspection on the dock side rather than having a monitor on the boat there's some things like that but none of those things apply to to our clients because they have a freezer trawler, which means that they're freezing the fish as they are catching them, uh, which is efficient in one way. But you can't then inspect them on the uh, on the dock side, so they just weren't able to take advantage of of those uh, exemptions. So it's just very expensive for them to have these monitors, and uh, our clients don't always fish for herring. So they might go out and they might find butterfish, or they might find squid, or they might find mackerel. And so they, they're paying for this herring fishery observer to be on the boat, and they might not even catch any herring on the entire trip. And yet they're still having to pay this person $700 a day uh, to be on the boat. So it's just not, it's not. So in a situation bad.
0: like this, I'm just wondering now, I'm, and I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking, in a situation like this, your client's. Do they uh, can they approach the regulatory agency and tell NOAA, hey, um, look, this is this regulation is extremely burdensome. It's not necessary. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Will you please not apply it to us? Will you please repeal it or make an exception?
1: Right. And so uh, this regulation was issued at the end of that entire process. So our uh, uh, the uh, Megan Lap is the name of uh, of the. Uh, of the woman who works for our client SeaFreeze, freeze who attended all of these regulatory hearings. And uh, you can listen to her uh, talk about it. There's a video on our website where she talks about it a little bit. She's given some, uh, some, uh, uh, some interviews this month as well, talking about how she went to every single one of these meetings that was held, every one of these uh, opportunities to weigh in on, on, uh, how to construct the regulation or what problems there were with the regulation. And she explained all of this to all the regulators, every chance she got, and they basically just ignored her and and went ahead with the regulation uh, that they wanted uh, to do anyway. And that's another problem, Jeff, with Chevron is because the agencies know that they're going to get deference in court. And because they know that, they don't have very much incentive to do something that is closer in line with what the statute allows. As, as uh, you know, uh, the attorney who argued this case for us in the Supreme Court, a guy named Roman Martinez, who's a partner at, at Latham & Watkins uh, here in DC, did a fantastic job. Uh, Roman used to be in the Solicitor General's office at the Department of Justice, and he told us that his experience when he was in the government dealing with these agencies is they don't look at the statute and say, what does the statute allow us to do? Or how can we best comply with the statute? Instead, they look at the statute and they say, how far can we push this and still get Chevron deference to how we want to do things? So it just really, you know, it, it creates these, you could call them degrees of freedom for the agency, but that's degrees of, of unfreedom for you and me, or you know, degrees of cutting back on liberty for you and me that Congress never approved.
0: Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to learn a little more about the Ashbrook Center and how you can help us continue our work with teachers, students, and citizens.
2: I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashbrook. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org backslash support.
0: So you've talked a lot about, and this is really important for us to understand, the kind of economic impact on people like your clients who are just trying to make a living fishing. What about the constitutional impact? What impact does the Chevron Doctrine have on the fact that we ought to be ruled by the Constitution and by laws made by Congress under the Constitution?
1: So a fantastic question, Jeff, and maybe we should have even started there because uh, that you know that's certainly why the new Civil Liberties Alliance uh, took a particular interest in this case, uh, we were founded by a Professor Philip Hamburger, who is a constitutional law professor at Columbia Law School in New York, and uh, you know, he uh, wrote an article about Chevron bias back in in 2016. It's in the George Washington Law Review. If anybody uh, wants to go look that up online, and you know the the particular arguments that that Philip makes against uh, Chevron deference are ones that had not really been made very much before. Uh, his article uh, came down, and and he makes two main constitutional arguments. First, uh, under Article 3, the judicial power is given uh, to Article 3 judges. It's not given uh, to the executive agencies. It's not even given to Congress. And so if, if the courts are deferring to the administrative agencies as to the meaning of the law, then they're not really fulfilling their duty as judges. Uh, there's the Constitution goes to a lot of trouble to protect the independence of the judiciary. I mean, everyone thinks of life tenure and not being able to reduce the salary of judges, but there are a lot of other things in there too. I mean, no religious tests. You can't serve in Congress and be a federal judge at the same time. You can't serve in the Electoral College and be a judge at the same time. There's all these things that are done to ensure the the, the independence of judges. And when they turn around then and instead look for the meaning of the law from someone in the executive branch, well, they're looking for someone who isn't protected and doesn't have independence. And in fact, in a sense, you're allowing the agency to be a judge in its own case, which is an ancient principle of justice that you never let someone be a judge in their own case. And yet that's what happens when you defer to the agency's interpretation uh, of the law here. So that's a real problem from a co- structural constitutional Standpoint that you're giving away uh, the Article Three responsibility of the judiciary, and you know, coming with that too, if you think of it as the Supreme Court uh, had uh, come up with this decision, they're imposing this obligation on lower courts to follow that precedent, and in a sense, to uh, you know, to ignore their constitution, the oath that they took to uphold the Constitution. So every time they follow Chevron. They're really not following Article Three, and that's not right either to impose that obligation on on lower court uh, judges. So that's part of the problem, as well.
0: Yeah, but, it makes me think of Federalist seventy eight, where Alexander Hamilton says it's the peculiar province of the courts to say what the law is, mm-hmm. and, and he contrasts. He seems to contrast that with the legislature and with the executive branch.
1: And we talked about Marbury versus Madison uh, before. One of the holdings of Marbury versus Madison is that it's the uh, it's the obligation of the courts to say what the law is, and so that's a uh that's definitely a long standing uh original understanding of the meaning of of article three
0: so one of the constitutional challenges as you're saying then is that it has really undermined the power of the of the federal judiciary to its ability to exercise its judicial powers as originally understood uh in the Constitution. Are there other corrosive harmful effects of the chevron doctrine
1: Uh, there are i mean as you say it clips the wings of, of the judiciary and it it really prevents them from being able to rein in an administrative agency that has uh you know that has exceeded its statutory remit so part of the job of the courts is to make sure that the executive branch is doing what congress told it to do right but if it's deferring to the executive branch then it's not really making sure that it's doing what congress Told it to do, and there's this. Uh, they 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 refer to it as a as a fiction that there's this fiction that uh, under Chevron that there was a delegation of authority from Congress to the agency, uh, uh, particularly when there's an ambiguity that that there is this delegation where there's an ambiguity or silence. There's a delegation to the agency to construe the meaning of the statute, uh, but that's not really true. First of all. It's hard to see that a silence delegates anything, uh, and if there's an ambiguity, it's really hard to see that that's a delegation either. So, you know, under Article One of the Constitution, uh, all the legislative power is given to Congress, right? Uh, that's Article One, Section One, the very start of the Constitution. Right. All let all legislative power is is given to Congress. So if you start saying, well, wait a minute, uh, we're gonna we're not even talking about express delegations, which you know, there's a whole non-delegation doctrine we can get into some other time about how much power Congress can give away, and the answer is not very much. But uh, but certainly, if you're talking about delegations that aren't even express delegations, they are uh, implied or or even silence, and you start reading that as empowering executive agencies, well, then you've you've got another constitutional structural constitutional problem where you've taken Article One power and you've moved it over. Uh, to Article Two instead, and if the age, if Article Three judges are deferring to that, then instead of upholding that line between Article One and Article Two, they're actually abetting the leakage of Article One power into Article Two uh, agencies, and that's a real problem with Chevron deference as well.
0: So it sounds to me like you could end up with a situation where you have really a breakdown of checks and balances, particularly on bureaucracies in the executive branch.
1: You said it much more succinctly than I did, Jeff. (laughs) That's exactly
0: right. (laughs) Uh, And and of course, constitutionally, that's a tremendous problem when you think about a a Republican form of government, where the people are supposed to be represented or governed by laws created by their own representatives and have to be. And shouldn't those laws be clear in what they tell people they can do and not
1: do? The, the laws should be clear and they should be written by Congress, which are the people who are elected to write the laws and, and which the Constitution empowers uh, to write the laws. And if instead they're allowed to say vague things or their silences for crying out loud are are construed as somehow empowering agencies to do things, then you're really losing self-government. There's not really the ability. I mean, we were talking about Megan going to all of these administrative hearings and so forth. Well sure they listened to her but they didn't really listen to her right they didn't actually have to 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 do anything and uh, And they
0: didn't feel they didn't feel the same kind of need to listen to her that an elected representative might feel because they're elected.
1: That's right. If this were a congressman from Rhode Island I guarantee that they would have listened much closer to to Megan's concerns uh than this uh, federal official from uh the Nash uh you know from the fisheries management uh uh, agency
0: well your you obviously the cases now have gone up um, are you hopeful is there any reason to believe that the federal courts including the supreme court are ready to take a second look at the chevron defense
1: so we do think that the court the supreme court is ready to take a second look for one uh, reason that we think that is the there was more than one question presented to the court uh in this case but the only one they granted was the should we overturn the chevron doctrine question and so that tells you that they're not really looking to nibble uh here uh if i i guess i can keep with my fish metaphors uh but you know that i think they are looking uh to uh, to 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 deal with the uh, uh the big whale and i um you know, there's there's other sort of issues in play here. And one of them is the Administrative Procedure Act, which uh, was passed in 1946, and it was essentially Congress reacting to a lot of what had happened the previous decade and a half uh, in the construction of the New Deal and all the you know, the creation of these new federal agencies and a lot of federal power under the Roosevelt administration that uh, hadn't really seen before. And Congress said, now, wait a minute, we, we, we want the courts to have uh, a role here. And the Administrative Procedure Act tells the judiciary, as a matter of statute, and we already know this from the Constitution, as we were talking about it. But it also says, as a matter of statute, we want the judiciary to have uh, to to give statutes and constitutional provisions the same level of review. Well, we already know that the courts don't defer to federal agencies on constitutional questions. No one disagrees about that. So if they're also not supposed to defer to them on statutory questions, then Congress has already said in this law that they don't want something like the Chevron doctrine. And so we have, you know, we live in a in an age now where the judiciary for the last couple of decades has become much more textualist. They care a lot more about what the statutes say and more than they did back in 1984 when Chevron was passed. And the Chevron case itself never talked about the Administrative Procedure Act never came up in the discussion of the case and there's um you know there's a there's some reasons for that including the fact that the clean air act has its own provision that's a little bit different from the apa uh, but at no point has the court ever uh really dealt with the fact that chevron does appear to be against the text of the administrative procedure act so that's another issue that the court spent a lot of time on in oral argument this month saying how did this happen and why was this never Know grappled with over the last forty years, and does the Administrative Procedure Act really mean that we can't, uh, you know, we can't continue to follow uh, Chevron uh, deference? And so that's, you know, that was an important part of the conversation uh, as well.
0: So when you look at the state of the current court, um, are there judges, are there justices who have given indications, obviously besides the court taking the case itself, is there any sense that you have? That um, there, there's a appetite to overturn the entire uh, defense or to reform it in some way. What, what, what's your sense now that the case is in front of the court?
1: Yeah, well, uh, now that we've had oral argument in front of uh, of the nine justices, we we definitely heard voices from 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 three of the nine uh, justices. Uh, I, I would say. Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Jackson uh, were uh, more friendly to Chevron deference, looking for ways of sort of either keeping it, or they were arguing on stare decisis grounds uh, that that we shouldn't change this precedent. Uh, and at, at you know at most they were saying, well, should we maybe mend it, don't end it? You know, kind of uh, kind of a conversation. Uh, But the other six justices uh, weren't singing from that same songbook. And in fact, uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch uh, were all in more or less uh, signaling the problems with Chevron deference of one kind or another. And Justice Alito wanted to know, well, why did people think this was a good idea in the first place? And he asked both sides. You know that question and asked actually in both cases, he asked the uh, uh, Roman Martinez in our case and Paul Clements argued on behalf of Loper Bright, he asked Paul as well that question. And so they were explaining kind of what I did, that the court has become much more textualist now. Back then, when Chevron was decided, there was a feeling that the a lot of the lower court judges were engaged in judicial activism, that they were that maybe by deferring to the agencies, you could rein in some of that judicial activism. And so that was the idea. But now what we've seen is that Chevron has instead turned the agencies loose and we have agency activism uh, of a sort that's even harder to rein in uh, than judicial activism. And so what might have it might have seemed like a good idea at the time to relax some of the constitutional uh constraints on uh on the way that we divide government and it turned out that was a failed experiment it was a really bad idea we need to go back to doing things the way the founders set it up
0: and for your uh, organization the new civil liberties alliance obviously this is a very important case that you've been involved in you have other cases as well as i understand that you are actively litigating um tell us a little bit more because of, obviously this is going to be this has the potential to be a landmark decision as you say um yeah. but you you uh, besides this other cases that your organization takes and the kind of cases that you look out for
1: sure so uh, we probably have 50 open cases so we don't we don't have time to talk about uh, you know all of those right now but uh, one case that uh, uh, that Ashbrook folks might be particularly interested in, uh, we are suing the Department of Education over its effort to forgive student loan debt, uh, which, uh, again, we don't think that Congress has ever passed uh, the kind of statute it would need to pass to empower the Department of Education or other federal agencies to forgive student loan debt. And the Supreme Court agreed with us about that uh, last uh, last June and struck down the administration's effort to forgive close to half a trillion dollars in student loan debt without involving Congress. Uh, unfortunately, the administration's reaction to that was to come up with a whole bunch more programs trying to forgive slightly lower amounts of, of debt in similarly unconstitutional ways. And so we have, uh, you know, we're have we continuing to push back against that and, and try to get the courts to rein in uh, that uh, illegality. Something else we're very involved in and that we're going to be in front of the Supreme Court on uh, in March is the social media censorship that we've seen uh, take place, uh, particularly under the current administration, although uh, some of what we discussed began uh, earlier than that uh, during the COVID pandemic under the last administration. Uh, But we see all these federal agencies that are reaching out to the social media companies and asking them to censor different people's voices maybe because they're saying something that they don't like about COVID, maybe because they're saying something they don't like uh, about President Biden or about the Hunter Biden laptop or about you know other topics. And there seems to be this idea in the federal government right now that they have the, the responsibility to police truth on the internet. And that's not ever something that we've entrusted the government uh, to do. The government can can police the line between legal speech and illegal speech, and that's fine. The government can, for example, uh, tell the internet providers to pull down child pornography or something like that, that's illegal. But we've never entrusted the government to police the line between what's true and what's false. And what what defenders of this have said is, well, it's not the government that's pulling it down, it's just alerting these private companies to the speech and asking them uh, to pull it down. Well, first of all, the government cannot do indirectly what it's forbidden from doing directly. That's a long standing principle. And that's exactly what it's trying to do in this censorship situation. The other thing is, it's exerted a lot of pressure on these companies uh, to go along with the government's bidding uh, in, in this area. So even if you know, we don't think that it, it takes uh, a coercion standard or a pressure standard to, uh, to suppress free speech, the First Amendment talks about abridging free speech, which means reducing or diminishing. And it's unquestionable that the government's conduct here has reduced or diminished speech. It has flagged content to be taken down, which has then been taken down. That definitely abridges speech. Uh, But even if you accepted a a higher standard, uh, I think you would agree that the government's conduct here has pressured the companies uh, to, to do uh, what they've done and silenced many, many voices. And by the way, a lot of our clients' speech has been truthful speech. They've said things about COVID, for example. They were saying that uh, you know, there is such a thing as natural immunity. If you've recovered from COVID, you have those antibodies, you might not need the vaccine or certainly not right away. Or you uh, or you know the, this may have originated from the Wuhan lab, which was something the government was suppressing speech on that for a while or one of our clients even Jeff volunteered in the vaccine trials so this is not someone who's anti-vax she vac she you know she volunteered to be in the trials and then was injured as a result of getting the vaccine and this wasn't her diagnosis this was the NIH the National Institutes of Health diagnosed her as being vaccine injured as a result of getting the vaccine during the trials and so she had set up a support group on the internet to try to help out other people, not to not to be anti-vax, not to spread negative information, certainly not to spread false information, but to share the truthful information about her experience and to reach out and be a support group, like a cancer network or something like that, to be a support group to other people experiencing what she had experienced and going through uh, the suffering that she was going through. And the government shut that down. Uh, the you know, asked Facebook and these other groups to take down those those support groups and those uh, that sort of speech. So really, very pernicious kinds of social media censorship uh, taking place, all in violation of the First Amendment. And we are really fighting hard uh, to stop the government from doing from doing that.
0: Well, we will be fascinated to hear the outcome of that case, and of course, also the case you have with the Supreme Court on the Chevron defense. Uh, Mark Chenna with Thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on The American Idea.
1: Good to be with you. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.